That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Bob Seska Show. Bob Seska. I don't know what we're yelling about. The Bob Seska Show. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, Rocktober 27, 2021, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Hi, my name is Bob. Hello, Bob. Hello. Day 281 of the Biden-Harris administration, 378 days until the 22 midterms. I am on Instagram. Find me at the Bob Seska, and on Twitter, of course, at Bob Seska underscore go, the worst Twitter handle in all of Twitter. All right, David Pepper returns to the show today. David, of course, is the former chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party and the author of a brand new book that couldn't be more important, torn from today's headlines. It's called Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. Guess what? We have to recalibrate our priorities as Democratic voters, focusing less on the social media crap, the social media shovel fights, more on simply dominating elections. That means registering new voters. Anyone can do that. We can all do that. We can all go out, register voters. And then we need to deliver as many human beings to polling places as humanly possible. As Arnold Schwarzenegger says, and it's weird to quote Arnold in this context, but here goes, there is no magic pill. There is no secret formula for winning. We can do this if we want it badly enough. So this is what David Pepper and I focused on today. Stick around. Let me know what you think in the comments on our Patreon page. BobSeskaShow.com or Patreon.com slash BobSeskaShow. Okay, this is me talking with David Pepper, who clearly gets a lot of email. You'll hear what I mean. All right, let's do this. Yeah, uh, you don't need your video if you don't want it. Oh, are we just talking? Okay, great. Yeah, it's just audio. I don't, I don't do the video thing. It's just, it's too complicated. I, I couldn't remember, so. <laughs> That's okay. I was all dressed up with my fancy uh, sweater vest. And... <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to make you go through uh, hair and makeup before uh, exactly. before joining us. Hey, look, congratulations on the book, Laboratories of Autocracy. Um, I noticed it was in the top five on Amazon, just in time, huh? Well, it was top five in sort of elections. I'm sorry, democracy, which is where, which is the category, but I'm excited about that. I've I'm obviously trying to get the word out about what's happening, so I'm glad people are buying it. Yeah, uh, perfect timing on all of this, just as I said, because uh, irrespective of what chart you're on, I'm glad it's at the top of whatever chart it is, because the, the topic of the book is maybe the most important issue we face as a country right now. I mean, obviously, there are existential issues like the climate crisis that we're trying to tackle at the same time. But yeah. without democracy, I don't know if any of that crap happens. Yeah, it's foundational. And, and what I describe in the book is, frankly, why we aren't making progress on so many issues, because in being these broken, undemocratic institutions that they are, uh, they have become the place where those fighting, you know, the majority will. You know, most people want to do something about climate change yeah. or common sense gun reform. Um, those are popular issues, healthcare. Mm-hmm. But state houses are sort of now the new counter-majoritarian institution hmm. where if you want to do the opposite of what people want, that's where you go. Yeah. So yeah. state houses are nonstop attacking efforts to, to deal with climate change, attacking everything else. And the Koch brothers and others have figured out, hey, go to a state house. They'll get it done and they'll never lose their office. So they'll keep doing it. Such a great so point. It's all, it's all ties together. The yeah. substance is reflected 
from these broken counter majoritarian undemocratic institutions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for decades now, uh, I think we've all been seeing this. We've been observing this up close. We've been noticing that it's happening. And obviously you write about it in the book. Um, The far right has been worming its way into the state and local arena while I think Democratic voters seem more interested in putting all their emotional and activist energy into the big national races, which is okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but it's to the neglect of some of these state and local races that are becoming more and more important as we move forward in time. It seems just as challenging to refocus Democratic priorities as it is to defeat Republican priorities these days. Am I seeing this clearly enough? You are. I don't think Democrats are defining the battle in their mind the way they need to, which is it's a fight for democracy itself. Mm -hmm. Once you realize that that's what it's about, you know, the same way if we saw another country on Hungary, it's happening, fall away from democracy, you know, uh, uh, changing the rules, attacking the many courts, you know, uh, uh, attacking protests. Yeah. First Amendment. Like if we saw that in another country, we'd be like, my God, that country is falling away from democracy. They're becoming some kind of, you know, autocracy of some sort. Well, it's happening in our states, but we don't see it in the same way. We should. Yeah. And the minute you define it that way is when you say, okay, we can't just fight for democracy in electoral college swing states or when it happens to have a Senate candidate we want to give to you got to fight for democracy everywhere. And, and I'm not saying that you should, you know, take half your presidential budget and put it into all 50 states. Take 5%. I mean, if you if you took a rounding error mm-hmm. of what we all put into a handful of Senate races in the presidential race and said, we're going to spend that on an annual basis to support candidates and registering of voters in 50 states all the time, you not only would make a, by the way, that's what the Koch brothers have done for 30 years. Yeah. Um, and the spend at that local level, you get a lot more out of your dollar. Not only would you help save democracy, you'd actually do better in the presidential race. Absolutely. Because you've been building and building and building. Mm. So we just have not defined it right. And it means we play too narrowly and we play every few years instead of all the time. And, and it's really, you know, it is late to play catch up. But my book, the reason I sort of frantically wrote it, I mean, I, I began writing this book in about April. Like, this is not some wow. multi-year project, is to say we're behind. There's not a lot of time left before some of these things get truly locked in. But, you know, there's still time. Yeah. So get involved, get a, get active, and, and first of all, get really concerned. My, the, the first two-thirds of my book, should scare people. Yeah. I mean, it, it, by just telling it in its true, ugly truth. But then this, the last third is, if you're sufficiently worried, here are simple things that everybody, from Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and their responsibility in Congress, all the way to the neighborhood activists can do, to help fight back. Yeah, and let's I want to talk about the final third here in just a minute, but before we do that, let's talk about the scary two-thirds, David. Okay. <laughs> because Yeah, that's the part I think will dominate people's thinking. Yeah, yeah, cuz I don't know if you're like me. I, I've been noticing this, we've been all observing this to some extent, but I tend to look at some of these events, this rise of fascism, this rise of autocracy in this country, certainly exacerbated around the globe by uh, people like Vladimir Putin, and noticing also where it could end up going, where it's no longer a feature of our democratic debate. It actually supersedes democracy eventually. And that's terrifying. So for me, it's enormously stressful to be staring down into the gaping maw of the Chernobyl reactor on fire on a daily basis. I don't know how you managed to get through the first two thirds of your book without being completely stressed out by your own reporting. I, I was running. I was writing very quickly because I, I, it's funny. <laughs> I, I began the book concerned. Uh-huh. And as I say in the book. If you started this book concerned, my guess is you're more concerned now. And then I wrote, I'm more concerned after writing it than I was when I started writing it. Yeah. Yeah. Because, in, in, you know, I was the chair of the Ohio Democratic Party for a number of years and I was in the fight. But in a way, taking a step away, which I did in January, has a, having been in the fight, I now take a step back and I can see all the contours of it. And that's the other thing that I think gets lost is, you know, 
we we've segmented out the different things that are happening as if they're independent, you know, mm-hmm. but I would tell you that there, there's attack on voting. There's attack on protests. And then there's this new kind of attack that whether it's the abortion law in Texas or stoking up election observers or saying that people who hit protesters in a car are immune, it's vigilantism mm-hmm. to get what they want in violating rights. And all of that, if you, again, if it was another country doing it, we would be on like DEFCON 1. Like, my gosh, that country is falling away from democracy. Yeah. And that is the reality of many, not not all, but many, many states, all these things at once, never any accountability. It, it, yeah, it, it is very worrisome. And the point of my book is to, you know, this is going to, I don't want to sound, get carried away. I sort of felt like Paul Revere, like it's all coming. <laughs> yeah. Like get it out there. And that's why, you know, I, I'm not here to pitch books, but if you, if you aren't really convinced, please read the book. Yeah. And if it then convinces you, and this is why I appreciate having me on, please tell other people because I don't really see anything out there that's really capturing it. And so one of the things I try to do in this book, cause I I've seen some of the books out there that sort of touch on this mm-hmm. and they sort of do like a broad statewide, well, here's what they're all doing. And this, and you kind of glaze over mm-hmm. And the people especially glaze over when they hear about state houses. The problem is that's the problem. Yeah. The fact that no one knows what's happening in state houses is what's made them so vulnerable to national and in-state players saying, hey, we're going to go here to suppress the vote. We're going to go here to, 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 to do corrupt things. And the fact that the average person can't name their own state house member is, is fueled to the problem. So uh, my goal in writing this was to write it in a way that like, sort of like what's the matter with Kansas, but for Ohio and for democracy. Yeah, yeah. And but but then just to be clear, it's not a book about Ohio. I then quickly say the painful reality I'm describing in Ohio and I draw it out in a way that especially Ohioans will find really painful. Um, that is not an Ohio problem. It's a national problem because the same set of incentives and dysfunctions are in most state houses right now. Mm-hmm. And the Koch brothers and Alec in this group called the Heritage Foundation, they figured that out a while back and they have set themselves up in a way that they are literally pulling the levers of state houses. They've weaponized these state houses to accomplish a national agenda they could never accomplish in Congress, even if they tried. Yeah, and it's such a smart strategy because they know that, by and large, Democratic voters ignore those races. And sometimes we pay attention, but oftentimes it's after it's too late. Like after someone gets elected or an election doesn't necessarily go our way, then we take to the streets after the election instead of taking to the streets before the election. And you know what I think it is partly, David, and this is just from anecdotal observation, I get the sense that a lot of Democratic voters are afraid of being seen as Democratic Party apparatchiks. We all want to be seen as independent thinkers who make up our own mind and we don't go with the crowd when it comes to party politics. And, you know, I found myself in this situation looking at the Sophie's Choice between appearing to be a Democratic Party apparatchik while also warning my audience that it's either the Democrats or fascism. I mean, that's the binary choice we face now. There's no two ways about it. You can't change. I don't care if you vote third party, but the the fact remains that we just have two major parties in this country, and the Republican Party has been taken over by fascism, and if they win, fascism wins. I'm having a hard time convincing people of that without seeming like I'm just an apologist for the Democratic Party. How do you get around that, David? Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to do it because I was the chair of the party, but I try and <laughs> right. I try and redefine it yeah. by saying, you know, this is about small d democracy. Mm-hmm. That's it. And that's why I keep saying if we saw this in another country with these features, we would be alarmed. Yeah. And my hope is that removes the partisanship. It's not about that anymore. And that's why if you have Republicans, and I'm I'm doing this on some Republican-leaning podcasts like Lincoln Project. Um, who are on the side of small D democracy, welcome aboard. Like, don't let the <laughs> fact that we don't agree on other things get in the way. By the way, this is how Jim Crow happened. Yeah. We let other divisions get in the way of, of going to bat for democracy in the South. And that's when Jim Crow happened. Don't let other divisions 
blind us to the fact that we have to be united with anybody who supports small d democracy. Um, and I just think we have to start re redefining the terms of what's happening. The other thing I, I've said this, um, I think we need to move on from this term, never Trump, because never Trump is also too narrow. Yeah, it's very specific. There, there, are, there are Republicans out there who will call themselves never Trump, but they'll gerrymander the hell out of a state <laughs> or their attack voting rights. Well, sorry, it's got to be about always democracy. Yeah. If, if it's you know, it, that'd be like literally saying, and I put this in the book, that there was a never Andrew Johnson movement in uh, in in the South in the late 1800s and not never Jim Crow. Like we've got to think more broadly about democracy. And that means independence. You know, if they have a slightly different view on some other issues, as long as they're there to defend democracy, that's the team that we all want to build. Yeah. And it's yeah. got to be fierce. And it's got to it's got to also, though, in this you may you may lose some people with this, but I think it's the right way to think about it. Attacks on unions have been part of the attack on democracy. They're trying to crush one of the final remaining forces that that like unifies people uh, in certain ways and supports get out the vote efforts. Like mm. they're not doing it just out of economics. Yeah, it's to kneecap forces that are for you know represent people in a broad way. And and, and just in the Texas abortion ban, if you think about what they're doing, you know, right now. Choice is a constitutional right under Roe v. Wade. They don't like that. What are they doing? They're trying to come up with a mechanism so so people in Texas cannot sue to have their constitutional rights, you know, upheld by a court. And they're doing it through this legal vigilantism. That's an attack not just on the issue of choice. It's actually a deeper attack on a basic, you know, constitutional democracy where you get to protect your rights in court. So there's a lot of different ways they're doing it, but. I think so much of it falls under this broader issue that a minority of Americans who do not like this broader electorate, a diverse electorate, the most diverse ever, are trying to come up with mechanisms and techniques to keep that broader, diverse American majority from exerting its will through fair elections. Yeah. And anything yeah. they can do, any any ways they can you know, push laws or change district shapes or suppress the vote to keep cling to a power that that only a minority of them want them to exert. They're they're doing, and it's scary. Yeah, and it's yeah. accelerating by the. One of the things about this book is, uh, it is this did not start because Donald Trump claimed that he won the election. Mm -hmm. There had been a lot of conversation that well, these people are passing these laws because of the big lie. No, no, they've been doing it. After 2010, they did it brutally all over the country, including states like Ohio. Every 10 years, they are redrawing the lines, but they're also, they are pinpointing the exact reasons that they're losing elections and after the fact, changing the rules so they don't lose the election that way again. Mm -hmm. And so 2021, it's drop boxes. In 2011, it was early vote. Um, and so when we say, well, this is because of the big lie, no, it's not. They were going to do this anyway. But now they have the big lie as one other sort of cover uh, for why they're doing it. Yeah. And it's and, but it's accelerating because they've done it for 10 years and they've never been held accountable ever for doing it. So even when they fall on their face and it's struck down, they then get reelected and they can do it again and again and again. And mm -hmm. until we start having some real accountability, uh, there, there's no reason for them not to keep doing because it it's working. Yeah, the whole key to autocracy, the whole key to this rise in fascist idiocracy that we're witnessing here in this country is partly born out of the fact that the Republican Party is a minority party in terms of numbers, in terms of demographics. And the only way to overcome that minority status is to force it, is to force people into voting for Republicans, whether that means passing all of these voter suppression laws, which... You're exactly right, David. And this is something that certainly precedes the big lie and the election laws that we've seen passed this past year. But regardless, these are all things that they do in order to crowbar Republicans into office when they can't necessarily get the votes, right? Exactly. No, it's, it, and it's exactly what they're doing. And it's the more, and this is a sad part of our history. You know, every time you've seen, you know, a, a a diverse coalition come together to lead the country. You see this fierce backlash. Mm. You saw it in Reconstruction that led to Jim Crow. You saw it after 
the Voting Rights Act, where, where the entire South flipped parties. Um, as as um, Isabel Wilkerson wrote, uh, when Obama was elected, it was a huge, you know, inspiration for a backlash that we've been dealing with ever since that included Trump. And now we're seeing it on steroids. And it's it's a fear of not only not being in power, it's a fear that a diverse group of people is in power. And um, and the, the, the scary thing is, more than in past examples, these state houses are positioned perfectly to not just talk about these. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, they're talking. They're mm-hmm. not in the majority to do anything. Right. They're basically yapping. OK, they're talking, talking. They, they clearly tried to help on January 6th in some way or it looks like it. And that's terrible. But more dangerous are the hundreds of people just like them in state houses who are voting in bills right now that get signed. They're more dangerous and they're going to be more dangerous as we get to 24 and we start talking about how we pick electoral college votes and other things they could do. So and one other thing I say in the book that I think gets lost until you think about it and you're in a state like Ohio, it's it's a change versus a few years ago. The 2011 gerrymandering cycle basically led to what I call, you know, a, an entire generation of statehouse majorities who themselves have never been in real elections. Hmm. These are not people who, when I ran for city council or county commission, had to appeal a lot of people. They've never had to do that. Most of them have never been in a real election. Maybe the first primary they ran in, they got 6,000 votes and beat four other people. They've never once been in an election since. And so they're not, their own personal rise to power hasn't involved democracy. And, and one thing they figured out, the smart ones is, given everything they've done to stay in power, which means be extreme, because you don't want to have a primary, cut deals on really bad policy, like sending money to for-profit online schools that fail. Everything they've done while in their world of non-democracy would actually guarantee that they would lose in real elections. So these are the people that are now redrawing the lines and and passing voting rules. How do you think that's going to work out? They're going to draw the lines and set the rules so they don't actually have to face the voters because they know if they face them, they would be guaranteed to lose in many, many of the districts. So we have this generation that are essentially, they're there in power, almost entirely removed from anything that you and I would agree is that any kind of healthy democratic process. And the smart ones know it. That's why in Ohio right now, what what they're doing in the district process is just an undemocratic monstrosity at this point. They're, (laughs) They're lying. They're doing it in secret. They're violating the constitution. I don't think it'll end well for them in court in Ohio because we changed their constitution. But but what they're doing is desperately clinging to power, even if it means they're violating the laws of their state. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think part of it, David, is there seems to be this rising frustration with democracy, just in general. I mean, I, I'm seeing it uh, across the board. In fact, um, one of the indicators that I noticed, one of the metrics that came out recently uh, showed that I think it was something like 52, 53 percent of Trump voters support the idea of secession. While and this is the really shocking aspect of this poll, I think it was Monmouth. I may be wrong on that. Forty one percent of Biden voters actually also support secession. That indicates to me that, well, we can no longer create valid arguments based on facts and reason and persuasion. uh, And instead, well, bye, (laughs) we got to go. This is not working. Is this part of the problem, too, where I think there's just a general dissatisfaction with the sausage making and the, the frustrations of democracy, even though we know that the alternative is not going to be better than democracy. It's the Winston Churchill idea that the democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the other ones. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I think, I mean, it is, it is really um, disturbing to see that. And I think it, it comes partly from the demonizing of, of both sides. I mean, if all you've done is watch Fox news, talk about Joe Biden, like you're, you're, you know, you're in your basement scared to death because of (laughs) everything they're saying. And, and, Obviously, you know, Democrats are scared to death of some of what they see Republicans wanting to do almost on a daily basis. Uh, you know, I, I as part of trying to promote my book because I want to get the word out. Um, I 
I, you know, the birthplace of Ulysses Grant is about 40 miles away from where I'm sitting. Mm -hmm. And I went out there and I take my kids there. And, you know, ironically, about 10 minutes from where Ulysses Grant was born, it's a state house district whose representative uh, between 2012 and 20 was a guy who on his website literally would say he mused about Ohio nullifying its membership in the union. Oh God. And I go there, I'm like, what must Ulysses Grant think? Yeah. Here he and Sherman and all these Ohioans save the union. And and the guy who represents basically the community only a miles from where he lives is oh no, basically calling for secession. And, and he even writes on his website this guy that 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 you know to, to say that secession is not even something you should talk about is to argue that the, that the Civil War somehow justified might making right. I mean, crazy stuff. Right in the right in Ohio, where we had so many people fight for a yeah, union. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, you know, and this guy, he wasn't some fringe candidate. He was in office for eight years. Uh, as, and so part of what's happening is I do think that the lack of democracy. So what I'm trying to argue in this book is state houses for many intents and purposes have ceased operating as functioning democracies. There is no accountability back to the people. The results are basically guaranteed in 99% of the elections. Mm -hmm. And when you get that, it warps everything. And it's created this sort of, you know, it takes people who 10 years ago were protesting who, who, you know, everyone's right to protest, but who you'd say, okay, that view is a little fringe. That that secessionist view is way out there. It's taken them because of the way it's set up from being on, on the outside into the state house majority. And that is the concept. I don't think, and you asked in the beginning, why are Democrats um, always behind? I don't think most Democrats or actually even independents and Republicans have actually come to grips with how deep the damage is when you essentially don't have a functioning democracy for 10 years in the state. Yeah. And right yeah. now, if you want to know why Texas and Ohio look so crazy in their what's coming out of their state houses, it's because we really haven't had a democratic system uh, of governance in our state houses for a decade. And this is the consequence of people who feel no accountability and they can do whatever they want. And there's no sense that the people actually can do anything about it. Okay, we'll get back to our conversation with David Pepper here in just a second. But first, today's show is brought to you by the Shadow Docket Bonus Show on our Patreon page. As you know, the Bob Seska Show is almost entirely fueled by our Patreon subscribers. And we couldn't do four plus shows a week without your generous financial support. If you love what you hear, if you dig this show... Please consider signing up for our Shadow Docket bonus show every Tuesday and Thursday for just $5 per month. One, two, three, four, five, five dollars. It's pennies per show. It used to be called the Postmortem Show, by the way, but with the support of our existing subscribers, we changed it to the Shadow Docket. Same show, same exclusive content, but an all-new name. Again, that's $5 per month at bobseskashow.com or patreon.com slash bobseskashow. And we thank you. The Bob Seska Show. Have we become too focused, David, on the argument half of politics, whether it's on social media or watching Fox News Channel or whatever, the entertainment of the debate? Have we become too focused on that and not focused enough on the um, activism to drive more voters to the polls? Seems to me as if it's really lopsided on the end of the debate side, which means... Well, we get, what was we the get, other part you were referring to, sorry? Well, the, the first part is the debate, the shovel fights on social media, for example. Obviously, they take okay. place elsewhere, but social media is where they're the most visible versus the activism that's required to drive people to the polls, to get them registered yeah. and to get their butts in front of polling places. And I, mean, I, I, think, I, I find yeah, that, just, uh, just real quick, I find that right. the, the first part, the debate, is burning people out to the point where they don't want to do the second part. I think the stress of the debate is freaking people out and disillusioning them to the very notion of democracy. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, and you'll see, I get into, in my book, as part of the 30 steps, I get into, you know, you got to, you got you got the, the, you got to use your social media networks and others and letters to the editor. You got to battle untruth with truth. You can't just let the untruth the other sure. side out there 
Um, and I even say to people, go read George Lakoff as you do that, because you don't want to be proposing bad arguments. But I'd say the most important thing is go register people to vote. Yep. Make sure that there is a candidate in every state house district of every state in this country. Don't let them just get reelected without even, you know, thinking about it, because that is so I think it's both. But I think that, you know, these days, yes, people debate and argue and the actual activism of running yourself or convincing your friend to if you don't want to. And then everyone, everybody needs to figure out. And this is a nonprofit leader, you know, a a restaurant business, you name it. One of the things I call on this book is don't just wait for Stacey Abrams to create an organization to register voters. Uh, We need those. Yeah. Go register voter. If you run a restaurant, put voter registration materials in the restaurant. Yes. If you run a nonprofit and you're helping homeless people, those are people who are being targeted for purging. Register all of them. Mm -hmm. That's part of your mission now. It's a pro-democracy mission. If you run a grocery store, have a place where people can get their early vote uh, application at the exit so they do it. Everyone needs to take – and that's sort of a new kind of activism that – I think people, you know, I look back when I was on city council in Cincinnati, I worked very hard to make sure that the constituents knew how to get the earned income tax credit. I actually set up free tax preparation clinics at rec centers and at children's hospital. Well, you know what? I should have done that for voting. And I didn't, I didn't think about it that way. Every, every mayor, every school board member should say part of my job in a day of purging is to register everyone in our city that we serve. And so every rec center, every health clinic, Every library, don't just wait on the board of the, don't just give it to the board of motor vehicles. Like that's for people who are driving, good for them. (laughs) Every single public serving part of any city or county or school board should be always saying, oh, by the way, are you registered to vote? Have you moved? Have you re-registered? If they're going to be attacking democracy and purging people every day, which they are, those who support democracy have to be fighting for it every single day not as sort of a special side project, but as part of what they do. And that's one key way I put in the book. And that gets to the activism you talked about. Yes, yes. That's the kind of thinking we need to be taking on. Yeah, and one thing I suggested a couple of weeks ago, both uh, on social media and on my show, is the notion of maybe each one of us taking a couple of hours, just like two hours out of a Saturday, out of any given week, and we go out and register voters. Anyone can go and register new Democratic voters. I think some states have requirements to take a little training course or something like that. There are certainly rules about it, but these are things that we can do. And if we all did that, oh my God, David, we could out-hustle them, we could outnumber them at the polling places, because by and large, we live in a culture that is mostly liberal. I mean, politics aside, American culture is, if not fully liberal, moving quickly in in that direction. And so all we need to do is to harness that by maybe rechanneling some of our energy away from the screaming matches that tend to frustrate us and into the idea of taking direct action to push more voters into uh, into ballot boxes and polling places. Absolutely. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I absolutely. And and we should do it anyway. Mm-hmm. But when you're in a state like Ohio or Georgia and others, I think I do it more. Indiana recently started doing this where they're purging voters. It, it's literally if you wait for the campaigns to come along to re-register purge voters, if you wait for. Uh, Stacey Abrams to save the day, most places you've waited too long. We need to be re-registering purge voters all the time through organizations that that's all they do, but even more importantly, through every organization that cares about this stuff uh, or individuals, like you say. And if you're not, you know, you're going to, you're going to lose. In Ohio, it's been a game of whack-a-mole since 2010. They purge hundreds of thousands of people. Our campaigns try and re-register it's a losing battle. You mm-hmm. you can't keep up. Like Hillary Clinton spent to give her credit, she gets a lot of grief for her campaign. They spent almost their entire field effort in Ohio. I saw it. I was part of it, trying to re-register people for months that were purged, mm. and they registered some, not all. But what weren't they doing when they had to re-register? Talking to already registered voters in the way that Obama had been able to do. Talking to swing voters. So. 
you're kind of playing this game of whack-a-mole. And if you spend most of your campaign trying to account for government purging, you actually aren't running the full and broad campaign you need to win. So we can't wait for candidates to do it at the end. We've got to do it all the time in any organization that we're part of. And, you know, there's a court effort. There are lawyers taking on many of these voter suppression laws, where the more recent big lie election laws or the voter ID laws that go back a decade or two. That effort is ongoing. But in order to back up that effort, we still need to deliver voters to polling places. We still need to focus on winning more elections as Democrats. And I think the court effort only goes so far to challenge those laws in court. Uh, They have to be followed up with massive voting, because if those court efforts tend to fail, I mean, if, if there's obstacles along the way, which there are bound to be, we can still overcome some of those laws just by overwhelming the vote, just by dominating, because then it's not even close. I mean, if it's a close election, then they have the wiggle room to be able to challenge it in court and do their Republican shenanigans in the uh, state legislature to block the certification, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But if it's not even close, they're going to have a really hard time uh, challenging some of the results. And I think, you know, yeah. these are two things that need to go hand in hand. Challenge the laws, but at the same time, uh, just decimate the Republicans when it comes yeah. to, to turnout. You right? have to do that. And, and, and the third one, and I, and I talk about that. The, one of the problems with the, the legal challenges mm-hmm. is it's expensive. Yeah. So we need to really up the resources, allowing people to challenge these laws, because often we only challenge them in swing states. I, I mean, when I, I had to sue over drop boxes in Ohio. I literally had to fundraise with Twitter to raise the money to pay the legal fees to prove, which I did successfully, that our sector of state was lying through his teeth when he said he couldn't expand drop boxes. A lot of states, they wouldn't have pursued the litigation, not because they, they weren't right, because they didn't have the money to do it. And that would have allowed a, a, a lie about the, elect, the laws of a state to, to just remain in place. But that's not enough, although it, it's, essential, it's essential. I really appreciate what Mark Elias and others are doing right now. Thank God they're doing it. Mm -hmm. But you have to organize. But the other thing is, and this is, you know, I don't think controversial with you on your show or your listeners, but Congress has to step up. This, this, you know, pussyfooting around the the filibuster. Uh, One of the things I write in my book that it gets the most academic part of my book, but I think it's important. The founding fathers understood the risk of undemocratic state houses. They had just lived it. It's why they wrote the new constitution. They wanted to strengthen the federal government, but in giving, they gave states a good amount of power in the system, but they worried if any of these states turn undemocratic, the power we've given them could be used to undermine the whole country. They literally wrote words like that. So they wrote in the constitution, a clause that gets very little attention. It's called the Guarantee Clause. It says the federal government shall guarantee a Republican form of government in states, by which they meant government that was literally where the people were sovereign, the people's will was was respected. Yeah. And they wrote that. They didn't say, you know, it's something we're concerned about. They said, we'll guarantee, the federal government will guarantee. It was basically saying, we're only giving states the powers over, uh, over election rules and electors under the assumption that they're actually functioning democracies. And if they're not, the federal government has to step up. And that's why this notion that the filibuster should somehow get in the way of voting rights and Mm -hmm. gerrymandering laws is absurd. The founders would say, what are you talking about? We actually told you that we are guaranteeing democracies and states. Whatever this new process called the filibuster you come (laughs) up with, that should never stand in the way of something that we actually, we put a duty on you guys to guarantee democracies in states. And, and the, 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 the lesson is, and I agree with everything you said, long-term, and this is why Jim Crow came to this country, if the federal government does not resist attacks on democracy at the state level, those attacks win. Yeah. And so we need the organizing, we need the campaigning, we need the registering, but, but without the federal government saying, we have a role that we have been given in the constitution to protect democracy at the state level, if they don't do that, I'm afraid all the other work, at some point you run out of gas, just like the activists in the 1880s did, and the other side, who's relentlessly attacked democracy, wins the day. So they have to step up. 
And I've tried to get my book in the hands of federal leaders to say, this is bigger than the filibuster. You are you have been given a duty to guarantee democracy in states. That's an order. The word shall in the law is an order. Yeah. And it's shall guarantee. And they have to do that as well. You know, I've been finding a lot of people, um, obviously, and for really good reason, frustrated with uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, and the fact that they're the two hotheads who are holding up all of this legislation, certainly the rollback of the filibuster, any reform along those lines. And as a consequence, I think what happens is a lot of people are blaming the entire Democratic caucus on the Hill. Like, it's oh, it's right. all of those weak, ineffectual Democrats who can't get anything done when it actually comes down to these two hotheads, Manchin and Cinema. First of all, how do we best perceive their role in all of this? And then how does Democratic leadership on the Hill corral those two? I mean, are right. there any strategies along those lines? Anything else that they could be doing that they're not doing to get Manchin and Cinema to stop being the a holes in this uh, in this fight right well, now. Well, let me just say this, uh, and again, I I want the infrastructure bill to pass, mm-hmm. obviously, and I think I think the larger is the is better because if one of my biggest concerns is smaller towns that don't think Democrats are fighting for them, yeah, at all, and and these towns are dying. I mean, one of the things I point out in my book is that part and parcel with corrupt state level government is terrible public outcomes because these people in state houses are taking public assets and giving them over to the private sector who, who support them. Mm-hmm. And, and that inevitably leads to worse schools, worse roads, worse healthcare and small towns that are dying on the vine. I think we can win these voters over, but we're going to get there if, if the infrastructure is big enough so that the bill is big enough so that when split among 50 states, it doesn't just lead to the, fixing the biggest bridge over the Ohio River where I, where, near where I live, but actually helps roads in small towns. That's how you start making the case. So I'm a big believer in that. Um, but I want to separate voting rights. I mean, whatever you we think about the filibuster on infrastructure, I think, you know, someone would get rid of the filibuster no matter what. Um, I think voting rights is even bigger than than the infrastructure bill. Yeah. My hope is. Even if cinema and and mansion do not think the filibuster is appropriate for infrastructure, um, or 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 they don't support the big reconciliation, I, I just hope they don't have the same view on voting rights. That's when I would lose my mind because of what I said. You know, mm-hmm. whatever they think about these other issues, there is you know we have many exceptions to the filibuster. We can argue about what an exception is. To me, there's no clearer exception than when democracies are under attack in states. It's obviously something that the filibuster, representing in many cases the very states that are attacking democracy, should not be used as an obstacle. So my hope would be whatever their position is on infrastructure, that on voting itself, they actually would support a fili- uh, getting rid of, not, not recognizing the filibuster as an obstacle. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and to me, you know, whatever frustration they're causing everything else, if they support voting rights and not letting the filibuster stop them, I will take that win any day of the week. The, the other thing about the filibuster, David, is that now that the Democrats have threatened to roll back the filibuster, they have to do it, don't they? Because otherwise, because the threat was made, Mitch McConnell, if he regains power next year by some sort of horrible turn of events, which trying not to think about that too much, but if Mitch McConnell becomes the majority leader in the Senate again, Bye-bye filibuster on legislation. That's going to go away <laughs> merely yeah. because the Democrats threatened to do it and then didn't do it. So now it's going to be retaliation. And the excuse will be when it happens, well, the Democrats wanted to do it. Why can't we do it? So that's going to be the argument. So it seems to me right. as if, by the way, yeah. they would do it even if we didn't say we'd get rid of it. <laughs> right, right. That's true. They, but now they've they got this. It, extra, yeah, but yeah. no, you're totally right. Yeah, they do it on the things that matter to them. Mm-hmm. So th- this is all sort of the bigger picture is getting lost on many. They did it on judges. Why? Because judges are the ones who will rule on these state house actions. Yep. So when they need something done, they're perfectly willing to to not have the filibuster play a role, but then they insist on it playing a role on the things that we need done. And we need to stop playing their game. Uh, And we need to stop getting bullied. You know, Trump, uh, one thing that hopefully everyone learned in the Trump era is 
Caving to bullies doesn't work. It mm-hmm. just doesn't work. Once you cave, they know you'll always cave. They'll keep bullying and so on. The Republican Party has is dead because they didn't stand to a bully. So why in the world will we stand up to bully for Mitch McConnell that, well, if you do that, that if I'm ever in power again, I'll do it too. Like, do what you need to do right now to save democracy. You know, it, 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 and it's just that simple. Go on offense. Yeah. You cannot be in a game where the other side is an offense all the time. And you're only on, and you only play defense. You know, you go to court to stop the Texas legislature ban on abortion, but you don't actually ever figure out how the hell do we stop the Texas legislature from being so crazy in the first place. Yeah, You've got to go on offense. And that is federal. That's laws like the laws that are before the Senate. And that's doing, that's three thinking the way you do politics nationally. It's contesting every single district. One other thing that's really important, and, and, and Stacey Abrams is a perfect example of this, it's realizing this is a long game. John Lewis saw this as a long game. Women's suffragists saw this as a long game. Stacey Abrams, she didn't win in 18. I mean, she she lost after some real you know fancy uh, work by camp on voting laws. She didn't quit. Yep. She kept going, and everything she did long before her governor's run, through her governor's run, and in 20, got Biden elected in Georgia. It's a long game. And so we have to go on offense and think about it as a long game. And that's why, you know, we need people to run in every district, even if the first run probably won't end that well. But you know what? Having someone run in a district is so much better for democracy than nobody running, which happens in too many places. So we just have to go on offense. If we're only on defense, even if we, you know, if we stop that terrible Texas abortion ban, but every single Texas official voted for it, it remains in office, they'll do it again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And we just can't accept this continued being on defense and never going on offense. Yeah, and this goes back to what I was saying about winning more elections, David, because one of the reasons Manchin and Cinema have the power they have right now in the United States Senate is because we ended up delivering a 50-50 Senate. And right. where there was a map, where it was possible that we could have had a majority of 54, maybe even 55, uh, depending on uh, how the other East Coast races worked out. Um, we can't do anything about Manchin Cinema right now in terms of unseating them. They, they just they can't be removed from the Senate. There's nothing along those lines that is even practical to do. However, we can prevent the next mansion in cinema by dominating elections. And I, again, I feel like this is a simplistic course of action, but it seems like the obvious one, right? Yeah. No, we have, we, we absolutely have to run up our numbers. Yeah, we can't yeah. be this on the edge. Uh, and again, I, I want to say, I hope that as frustrated as, as people are in cinema and mansion on infrastructure, I hope they come through. I mean, Joe Manchin supports and was part of putting together this 50 that this voting rights bill with Amy mm-hmm. Klobuchar. And my hope is that I, I'm not I have not given up hope that they won't see a way to not have the filibuster stop voting rights, even if they're not doing uh, what we want on infrastructure. I mean, I, I still hope that happens. And in the end, in the long arc of history, that would actually be the more important piece of legislation. Yeah. Um, so my hope. But but either way, you know, we are we are that we are on thin ice overall when it's 50 50. We need to win the Pennsylvania Senate seat. We need to help Tim Ryan. Uh, he's can't I support at least uh, there's another Democrat running as well. But we need mm-hmm. to Tim Ryan, I think, will have a very good matchup against Josh Mandel. Now, Ohio could be tough in a midterm where we have the White House. But Tim Ryan is a very strong candidate versus Mandel. Let's go ahead and pick that one up. You know, yeah, obviously, yeah. we got to reelect. Um, uh, Raphael Warnock in um, Warnock in Georgia. But yeah, we need to not be on the edge like this because it, it makes it impossible to really push through the things we have to push through. And as you said, and this sounds so bleak, I'm like you, I don't, I'm a, I'm a pretty <laughs> low key. Like I was kind of moderate when I was in office, to be honest, like mm-hmm. it was a different time. I worked with the Republicans. It wasn't honestly that hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, I know if you listen to my actual words, it sounds alarmist. But I'm not someone who spent my life being running around thinking the sky's falling. But I agree with what you're saying. If you lose a certain set of elections in the next couple of cycles, we may not have any more or at least or at least any more where they're not so rigged in advance or after the fact that we have a chance of winning. And so we we have to come through big 
in the next couple of cycles. And I don't if you're down on Biden because he didn't do everything or you're you don't see why 22 matters, you know, somehow between now and November of 22. And this is why my book is written. We have to all figure out that this is democracy at stake. And we may not have a president on the line or we may not have a candidate as excited as exciting as, you know, Stacey Abrams on every state's ballot. But for God's sakes, if we don't win all up and down, we could lose the whole thing. And that's what people need to see. And that's why I wrote the book and I'm trying to get it out there. It sounds like what you're saying is rather hopeful, David, insofar as we can probably pull up on the controls before the plane crashes into the ground. And by the plane, I mean the Republic. Uh, Am I right? Yeah, I mean, I'm an optimist. Mm -hmm. It can be done. Here's what I know for sure. If we don't do something different than right now, we will fail. Yeah. yeah. I I just don't. And and that sounds so bleak, but I've been reading a lot of history lately. And the re- again, a reason I wrote the book is I if you look back, it's such a and this is why it's so horrible how they're attacking the teaching of the true history of our country. You know, in the 1870s in the South, we don't often recall that there were actually, you know, half the registered voters in Louisiana were black in, in the South after Reconstruction. Yep. There were it all over the South, elect, black elected mayors and congressmen and state houses, some governors, secretaries of state, sheriffs. And if you had told some if a, a young now women were voting it, obviously, but a, a young African-American man in his 20s in the mid 1870s would have thought, OK, life is hard. I'm discriminated against in many ways, but at least we're, I'm starting to see people who look like me in office and we are voting. And if you had said to that person, in 20 years, all of that's gone. If you, none, no one you know will be registered. Not one black official will remain. And that will be true the rest of your life. That person would have said, are you serious? And they wouldn't have thought that you. And so it's incredible how quickly, if you attack democracy, so much can change. Yeah. And it's, it's not crazy. It actually happened just like that a little more than 100 years ago. And so part of my goal is to say it can happen. And once you lose representative government, a lot of a lot follows with that, like attacks on protests and attacks on, you know, history. And and so I'm optimistic that if everyone gets involved, you can do it. But I'm also um, realistic that if we are if we continue to be in this lull that I sense we're in, where we sort of take it as given that these state houses are going to keep acting this way mm-hmm. and we don't fight back the the historic the historic precedent could not be more clear that those attacking democracy will win if the side for democracy gives up yeah and giving up means not really fighting until there's an election like 24 we need to get in the game long before 24 that's why i rushed to get the book out there yeah, and look, if that happens, if they end up uh, metastasizing, if the autocrats and fascists and so on metastasize in government, there is no election after that where we can write the pendulum. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's yeah. gonna be this or or we're screwed. And so we need to take action now. It's all about winning elections. Um, Meantime, you got to buy David Pepper's brand new book. The book is called Laboratories of Autocracy, a wake-up call from behind the lines. I got a link in the description under this episode at bobseska.com. And of course, you can follow David on Twitter at David Pepper. Thank you so much, my friend. It was great having you back on the show. Thanks, Bob. Always enjoyed talking, and thanks for helping spread the word. Yeah, good luck with the book. Take it easy. Okay, thanks. Talk soon. You bet. Bye-bye.